This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. My name is Chris Tomlins. I'm a professor of law here at Berkeley. I'm the current chair of the Jefferson Memorial Lectures Committee. And it will be my great pleasure in just a moment to introduce our lecturer this afternoon. I'm delighted to have this opportunity on behalf of the Jefferson Lecture Committee and on behalf of Berkeley's Graduate Council and Graduate Division to welcome today's lecturer, Professor Michael McConnell, to Berkeley. The Jefferson Memorial Lectures were established in 1944 through a bequest from Elizabeth Bonesteel and her husband, Cutler Bonesteel. The Bonesteels were a prominent San Francisco couple who cared deeply for history and who hoped that the lectures would encourage students, faculty, scholars, and members of the extended Berkeley community to study the legacy of Thomas Jefferson, and in particular, to explore the values inherent in American democracy. Uh, Never, one might observe, has their hope been more pressing than in the times in which we currently live. As the lecture series has matured over many years, the range of lecture topics has matured with it. Our lecturers have spoken on the subject of Thomas Jefferson himself on early American history, but they've also ranged far and wide on American institutions and policy, on politics, on economics, on education, and on law. Our lecturers have come from all points of the political compass. Many have come from the academy, and many have come from beyond the academy, from the worlds of politics and law, from media, from active civil and civic engagement. The role of past lecturers stretching back more than 60 years now includes such names as Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick, Senator Alan Simpson, Representative Thomas Foley, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Richard Hofstadter, Carol Pateman, Walter Lefebvre, Archibald Cox, Annette Gordon-Reed, and most recently, Judith Heumann. Now, for much of his life, Michael McConnell has, if I may put it this way, straddled the worlds of the academy, of the judiciary, and of the conservative intelligentsia. Indeed, as I understand it, he is currently co-chair of Facebook's Content Oversight Board, so we can claim him for media as well. He's currently Richard and Francis Mallory Professor of Law at Stanford Law School, where he's also Director of the Constitutional Law Center and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. From 2002 to 2009, he served as a Circuit Court Judge, um, as a Circuit Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. He was nominated to the Tenth Circuit by President George W. Bush, of course, a Republican, and confirmed unanimously by a Senate led at that time by the late Harry Reid, a Democrat. 
uh, that in itself will be recognized by future historians of our times as a notable achievement. As a litigator, Professor McConnell has argued 16 cases in the United States Supreme Court, most recently two years ago in Carney against Adams, a successful defense of a provision of the Delaware Constitution requiring political balance on that state's courts. Earlier in his life, Professor McConnell gained access to the other side of the Supreme Court bench as a law clerk to Justice William Brennan. He also clerked for Judge Skelly Wright on the DC Circuit. He has been Assistant General Counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, Assistant to the Solicitor General of the Department of Justice, and he has been a member of the President's Intelligence Oversight Board. This afternoon, Professor McConnell will speak to us on the topic, Constructing a Republican Executive. And it is my very great pleasure to welcome Michael McConnell to Berkeley. Thank you. So thank you very much for that introduction. And this is really quite an honor when I read for the first time that list of former Jefferson lecturers. I have to tell you, uh, uh, you know, who on that list doesn't quite fit in. It's very, it really is an honor. And I do appreciate all of you coming out on such a beautiful uh, Thursday afternoon uh, uh, to hear me. So uh, thank you, Chris. Thank all of you uh, for that. Uh, I'm going to speak from down here just because the podium strikes me as a, a very great distance, and I like to be able to see people's faces. Uh, so uh, the most dramatic moment at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 uh, was on the third day of debate. Now, as you may know, the uh, Constitution got started off, the debates at the convention got started off with a plan. So uh, this is, it's called the Virginia Plan. Anytime, any of you who've been on a committee knows that, you know, when you come in with a proposal, you know, that's really three quarters of the battle. But uh, actually it took months for them to hammer out what ultimately would happen. But the Virginia Plan, uh, this is like, you know, these are mostly direct quotes from um, James Madison's records of the Federal Convention. And Mr. Uh, Randolph, one of the deputies of Virginia, he happened to be the governor of the state, uh, laid before the House for their consideration sundry propositions, love the way they talk, in writing concerning the American Confederation and the establishment of national government. Uh, so uh, Edmund Randolph on the left here, uh, he was about 32 years old. He was a, he was handsome. He was well-spoken. Uh, he was of, uh, I think, a fifth-generation Virginia uh, aristocrat at this time. Uh, and he presented the plan, but he didn't write the plan. The main author of the plan we know now was uh, James Madison. Uh, Madison was short, really quite small. He had his he had a weak, reedy voice. When you read the records of the Virginia Ratifying Convention, not infrequently you'll see Madison talking, and then it'll say inaudible. <laughs> he he just he couldn't project this voice. All right, uh, he was bookish. 
Uh, unlike Governor Randolph, uh, he was not particularly sociable. Uh, he he spent a month, you know, preparing. He was he was studious. He would go back to his room and write notes about what happened and make plans and so forth. So I think of like G- Governor Randolph is like the president of the fraternity. And Madison is like the secretary or treasurer who gets all the work done. Uh, so he's primarily the author of this plan. And Randolph presents it. And on the first day, you know, despite you know, the, the illustrious character of its author and despite the considerable enthusiasm that the project of constitutional reform brought, uh, to these people to Philadelphia, it was a dog's breakfast of a first day. They couldn't agree on anything. It must have, Madison must have gone back to his room and wept. It was just, it must have been so disappointing. But the most dramatic moment came on the third day of debate when they came to the seventh, there are 15 prop resolutions, that's how the uh, uh, Virginia plan was organized, and the seventh addressed the executive power, and on they come to that, and uh, here are the and this is all that it says about the powers. It has some other things about elections and term of office and pay and stuff like that. But for the powers, this is the whole thing uh, that a national executive be instituted. Note, by the way, that it doesn't even say it's going to be of one person. And that sounds natural to us because we're so used to a single head of state. But across the ocean and the new republic in France, they're going to have a directory of five, succeeded by a consulate of three, succeeded by an emperor of one. Uh, But... uh, the, uh, in, in the Roman Republic, there were two consuls. Spain, Sparta had uh, two different kings. It was by no means obvious uh, that, there was going, that it was going to be a single person. A national executive be instituted, vague about its structure, that in addition to a general authority to execute the laws, it ought to enjoy the executive rights vested in Congress by the Confederation. That may sound harmless. First thing that happens is that James Wilson, delegate from Pennsylvania, later a Supreme Court, one of George Washington's first appointees uh, to the Supreme Court, widely regarded as the best lawyer at the convention, a very active participant in forming the Constitution. He makes a motion very short motion. He says, Mr. Wilson moved that the executive consists of a single person. At this point, Charles Pinckney of South Carolina, one of the youngest, he actually claimed, but he he lied about his his birthday because he wanted to go down in history as the youngest delegate. That was actually not true, but he was a kind of a poppin'jay personality, uh, loved to hear himself talk, but he's the first person to interject in the debate. And he says, uh, you can almost hear him gasp at this, at Resolution 7 with the Wilson Amendment. He was afraid that those executive powers, quote, might extend to peace and war 
etc., which would render the executive a monarchy. And why would he think that? Well, first of all, Blackstone's commentaries on the uh, laws of England, which uh, was you know, the law book of the day, uh, uh, lots of extremely familiar to uh, lawyers and many other people in uh, the Americas. Uh, chapter three of the king and his title, the supreme executive power of these kingdoms is vested by our laws in a single person. Right? And then it goes on. It says this person is invested with all the ensigns, rights, and prerogatives of sovereign power. So James Wilson, who certainly knew his Blackstone, used exactly the same words for the U.S. executive that Blackstone used in defining the title of the king. And if that wasn't bad enough, remember what it says here. The powers of the executive, the general authority to execute the laws, plus executive rights vested in Congress by the Confederation. Now, what what are we talking about here? This is the Articles of Confederation, where an extremely weak government that was set up basically started even before the Revolutionary War was finished, and it was the whole project of the Constitutional Convention to replace it with a stronger, more nationalistic uh, uh, constitution. Uh, But the Congress, called the Continental Congress at the time, um, has certain uh, powers, uh, and all of its executive rights, meaning executive powers, are... uh, are now going to be transferred to this new uh, constitutional executive. So in order to figure out what that means, we have to open up our copies of the Articles of Confederation. I didn't give you one of those. Um, I thought you had enough reading material with Article 2 itself. Uh, So what does the Articles have to say? So here are the executive powers of the Confederation Congress. Determining on peace and war, what did Charles Pinckney warn of? He said, "Uh uh-oh, this means you can see now what he's thinking. If If the Congress had the powers of peace and war, now that will be vested in the executive. What does that mean? That means that the president can take us into war without a, just on his own. He can make peace just on his own. Sending and receiving ambassadors, that's control over foreign policy, isn't it? Just on his own. Entering into treaties and alliances. Regulating captures and prizes. Granting letters of mark and reprisal. Determining the value of coin and the standards of weights and measures. Important powers over, over the, uh, the, basically the, the economic infrastructure of the country. Money. Money. Everybody wants to control money. Well, now we know who's going to control it. Uh, Dealing with the Indian tribes, establishing post offices, uh, which is like the social media of their day, right? Uh, Really the only medium of mass communication, right? The post offices. We should not just think of them the way we do now. That was was how newspapers were sent. That was the only way in which uh, uh, people could... uh, 
uh, communicate from you know Philadelphia to Boston, uh, appointing and commissioning army and navy officers, and directing the operations of the land and naval forces. Now, the Articles of Confederation do not actually label these powers executive. So, you know, there's no section where it says the executive powers are, that's me, that's, those are my words. How do we know that those were executive? And the answer is that they were all powers that were held uh, by King George III. Um, and when I, if, if you know your English legal history, your constitutional history, you'll know that in the kind of mists of time, 13th century, I don't, you know, Chris can probably correct me here. He's the uh, English legal historian. But uh, essentially the king was absolute. The one power that parliament had from a very early time was the power to tax. The most important power of all, right? Because if you can control the money, uh, but it takes um, it takes hundreds of years for the rest of the constitu- to, for Britain to turn into a constitutional monarchy, and and the king progressively lost a number of powers. He can no longer like send people to jail without any trial. He can no longer tax. I mean that he couldn't tax from a very early date, but a number of powers taken away. Uh, but those. Those are the ones that were left. And how do we know that they're all in Blackstone? They're all in Blackstone, and they're all prerogative powers uh, of the kings. What is a prerogative power? Prerogative power is a power that, the, that is held by the entity. Usually we're talking about an executive. You can use the word uh, uh, you know, more loosely. Chris probably has the prerogative to shut me down whenever he wants to. Like, that means he can, it's the discretion to do something, uh, but without the authorization of anyone else. You have that power, you have a prerogative power by virtue of who you are, what your office is. And the prerogative powers of the king were not subject to the control or regulation of the legislative branch. These are things the king could just do. As Blackstone put it, he can coin what money he wants. He can pardon what offenses he wants. He can veto what laws he wants, and nobody can control it. That's what a prerogative power is. And if that sounds scary, look at the piece of paper that you were given as you come in. Our president has prerogative powers. The most, you know, obvious ones being, you know, President Biden can veto any act he wants. Right? He can part. The, remember the pardon power. Uh, he can pardon whoever he wants. He has certain uh, prerogative powers, uh, and and that's where the idea comes from. So the, that list were the prerogative powers of the king, but. Uh, that's why Charles Pinckney was as upset as he was. Because when you have a single person vested with all of the prerogative powers of the king, what do you call that person? Might as well call him a king. Looks like a monarch. An elective monarch, to be sure, but a monarch. And this, I think, is the most 
The most dramatic moment at the entire convention, in my opinion, is this pause. This is the only time in, what, three months or so in Philadelphia that there is a pause. Usually they're just jumping up and trying to get the floor and have plenty to say. Nobody wanted to speak. Why? Well, I mean, we don't know. But let me tell you, my I think it's pretty obvious why nobody was willing to speak. The topic was so important, right? Because we had just fought a revolution against a king whom we thought was a tyrant. And it's so important that we not just put ourselves back in the same box again. So important but also so difficult because at that point in world history, there had never been a republic of any considerable extent that had an executive who did not devolve into being an authoritarian tyrant. There were no... The closest thing is going to be the king, really, the closest... But that's not a good one. The, the governors of the various states uh, between the revolution and 1787 were the, the state constitutions of very weak governors. Most of them served for one term. Only, only I think, three of them uh, were, had a, a veto power. Most of them couldn't even make appointments. Uh, they were really, really weak. Why were they so weak? Well, because they were so frightened of concentrated executive power that they made their governors extremely weak. Look through history. There were no examples of a successful Republican executive that had, I mean, you, you might have tiny states, but of an extended republic, you need an executive with, with the, and using their language you need a, an, an executive with the energy to be able to govern. That energy just means enough authority to actually make it work. All right, so, uh, uh, so they didn't have any models. Scary proposition and no models. And then this is what really, I think, makes them really scared to speak. The, uh, George Washington is sitting right there. He's been, he was just elected the chair of the Constitutional Convention. So he's sitting right there. They didn't know much else about the politics of the future. One thing everybody knew, and and actually Benjamin Franklin says it a couple days later, everybody knew that George Washington, who was the most trusted man in America, would be the first president. So to talk about the question of executive power and in and, and the dangers of executive power devolving into tyranny is to talk about George Washington, right? It's tough uh, to do. If, if the law school faculty has a, de- has a debate about the powers of the dean, do you think Erwin Chemerinsky is going to, like, he's going to read every word. It's going to be about him, right? Uh, and so with George Washington president, nobody 
nobody speaks. It takes Benjamin Franklin, the oldest and, and, and other than maybe Washington, the most respected of all the delegates, he has to coax them into, uh, into saying anything. And then they do start talking, and they do not like Resolution 7. So John Rutledge of South Carolina, who was, by the way, I mean, he had lots of, lots of things, you, of faults. He was a, a slave owner, defender of slavery, and so forth. But let me say something for him. He was the wartime governor in South Carolina and universally regarded as the most effective wartime governor. When the British invaded South Carolina, the legislature couldn't meet. They voted him the dictator of the state. Now, don't get too worried about that. We, when we hear dictator, at least when I hear dictator, I think of like Mussolini or you know, modern dictators. For them, the dictator was the title that in the Roman Republic they would give, they would create one of the consuls dictator in times of war, and that person had the concentrated executive, judicial, and legislative powers in order to prosecute the war, and at the end of it would uh, step down from it. Think of Cincinnatus as the most famous uh, example. Rutledge was like this. He was a one-man uh, governor, I mean, one-man dictator. He, he did everything, and, and uh, five, he had five plantations burned down by the British, but he just kept at it and kept things organized when there was nobody else uh, to organize anything. By the way, in marked contrast, dare I say it as part of the Jefferson lecture, in marked contrast to Thomas Jefferson, who was governor of Virginia and fled the capital when the British advanced and basically left the state rudderless, was later impeached by the Virginia legislature for his conduct of the war. So anyway, so Rutledge is the first to speak, and, and, and he has experience of being an executive, and he had stepped down from it. He was now a judge at this point in South Carolina. He favors a single executive, like Wilson, right, but was not forgiving the powers of war and peace. James Wilson, who I think probably at this point realized that he had stepped in it, uh, says he did not consider the prerogatives of the British monarch as a proper guide in defining the executive powers. In other words, it wasn't such a great idea to give all the prerogative powers to the executive. Uh, and Madison proposes letting Congress decide uh, which prerogative powers would be given uh, to the president. Right. And they vote on, just a couple days later, for an exceedingly weak executive. The only powers the president was given uh, in this initial vote were to carry into execution the national laws. That's un that was uncontroversial. A few appointments, but not ambassadors, wouldn't control foreign policy, not judges, doesn't have any power over that, but some appointments. Uh, and then a veto subject to override. No foreign affairs power, no military power, uh, evidently no control over the uh, administrative bureaucracy, if they even knew there would be such a thing. 
an exceedingly weak president. No power to recommend laws. I could go on and on with all the things that are not there. But that's adopted uh, in, instead of Madison's proposal, by the way. And then for almost two months, it goes like that. And although they debate how the president will be elected and what the terms of impeachment might be, and they debate in them, but they leave the powers like that. They don't touch them until way into, until really the, the end of July, beginning of August, at which point uh, the most misnamed committee in the history of the United States is set up. It's called the Committee of Detail. You would think that they're just working on matters of detail. Well, under they rewrote the whole thing. Uh, Two-thirds of the text, if you just count words, of the Constitution at that point came from the Committee of Detail. It was the Committee of Detail who figured out uh, the mechanisms for allocating respective powers between the federal government and the states. It was the Committee of Detail that adds such important provisions as the Necessary and Proper Clause. And for our purposes, most important, it is the Committee of Detail that figures out how to create an effective executive with sufficient energy to do what we need done, but one who would not be equivalent to a king. So uh, what did they do? Uh, when we, you, if you look, just glance at the piece of paper you have, uh, this is kind of just a quick summary. Quick summary. Uh, the beginning, Article 2 is all about the executive powers. It begins with a vesting clause. The executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. Then uh, we have oops, uh, pure prerogative powers and uh, Article 2, Section 2, including Commander-in-Chief. And this is not a complete list, by the way. This is just telling you, giving you a sense of what's in the Constitution. Uh, uh, then there are powers subject to advice and consent. So there's some, one, one thing they did was some of the po important powers that are potentially dangerous have a check. So the Senate can, the President acts, but the Senate uh, can override him. Um, and then they did a really interesting thing, which is uh, they recast some of the prerogative powers as duties. So uh, uh, it's, it's, which is actually somewhat significant in a number of ways, uh, especially the take care clause the la next to the last one on here, which says the president of the United States is not just authorized or empowered to execute the laws, he has a duty to execute the laws, but they know that laws can't be executed 100% like all the time. And so it, his duty is to faithfully execute the laws. Right? And notice also that uh, they recognized that he isn't going to be executing the laws personally. There's a passive voice here Somebody's going to be executing the laws, and it is the president's duty to oversee them and make sure that they execute properly. This is a matter of current constitutional, uh, the implications of this, I should say, are a matter of current, current uh, constitutional debate. The 
uh, Supreme Court has probably decided 10 cases in the, uh, in the last uh, uh, 20 years in which this is an, an important part of the uh, argument. So, um, it, when, so that's the content of the Constitution. I'd like to unpack it a little bit more analytically. This is so. This is not what the this this is not what the the framers literally said. But if you if you work your way through, uh, this is what they did. And I think they used three devices. Uh, and when I say devices, these are ways to have a powerful president who would not be equivalent uh, to a king. First of all. Uh, they vested many of the king's prerogative powers uh, in Congress rather than in the executive, and a number of them they denied altogether. Uh, Then of the prerogative powers left in the president, almost all of them they trimmed down. They made them much less uh, uh, potent and therefore much less dangerous than the co- corresponding power uh, that the king held. And then finally, uh, they deal with the residue and by giving all the remaining executive power, the things that haven't been given to Congress, haven't been eliminated altogether, haven't been given to the president as a prerogative. They give those to the president in the form of the of executive power clause, but, and this is my interpretation, uh, there will be plenty of people who would disagree with this, but it is my contention that the best way to understand what they did is that the powers of this in this third bucket were made subject to the authority of Congress to regulate or control what he was doing. So they made they demoted them. They're still executive powers, but they demote them from being prerogative powers to being powers that the, the president does not have to ask for them in advance. They're his by virtue of being president. But if Congress doesn't like it, Congress can pass a law uh, telling him to do it differently. So, details. Of the various prerogative powers of the king, every one of these is in Blackstone. I count, depending on how you count, I think there are about 42 uh, prerogative powers of the king listed in Blackstone. And my theory here is that the members of the Committee of Detail either had a mental list because they were so familiar with Blackstone, or they may have even had Blackstone right there with them uh, to make sure they got them because they treated the prerogative powers of the king as kind of a table of contents for what the various powers that they needed to do something about. Now, remember what Wilson said the prerogative powers of the king should not be the guide for the pres- for the executive powers. So they didn't just follow the British model, but they used the British model to make sure they didn't leave anything out, to make sure that they dealt with everything of importance. And so look at all the powers that they give to Congress. These are all powers King George had as of 1787 to make war. Letters of mark and reprisal, that's basically authorizing, uh, uh, this is a a type of war where you authorize uh, attacks on private shipping. Uh, uh, We can talk about that more, but they did a lot. It's like legalized piracy is what it is. The power to raise and support armies in the Army and the Navy. The power to coin money. 
really important power, right? Um, the power that's what I mean. If you think of the federal, if you think of our dollars as being coinage, and that we, that requires an argument, but I think it's persuasive. Uh, that's what the Federal Reserve does now, is they decide how much money we're going to have and what the value is of it. Uh, regulate weights and measures, establish the post office, patents and copyrights, define the law of nations, establish rules for the military forces. So really, think of how important that is, because uh, it, the legislature representing the people get to decide about the behavior of of the rules of conduct, like the uh, Uniform Code of Military uh, Justice and so forth. We'll talk, I'll give an example a little later. Uh, rules for naturalization, uh, calling forth the militias, regulating the militias, regulating federal property, uh, and creating and defining offices. All of those had been, were prerogative powers of the king. All of them are assigned expressly by the uh, uh, Constitution uh, to Congress. Uh, of the 40, as, as I count them, you know, 40, of the 42, I think that 41 of them from Blackstone were ex- either explicitly or by very strong implication dealt with in the text of the Constitution. I think that's pretty remarkable. And uh, 13 of the express powers given to Congress in Article I, Section 8 were, in fact, royal powers under the British system. So powers are not by their nature necessarily executive or legislative, depending upon, uh, you know, upon the circumstances. Then some of the power, prerogative powers are given to the president, to command the Army, Navy, and militia in actual service, to demand opinions in writing, which has to do with control over the bureaucracy, uh, to issue reprieves and pardons, uh, make appointments, make treaties. There are three of the three of the prerogatives are limited by advice and consent. Uh, and then he and then some of the prerogatives are turned into duties. Some of the prerogatives, do I have a slide on this? No, apparently not. So some of the prerogative powers of the king are eliminated altogether. Uh, he's the supreme head of the Church of England. Well, we're not going to have a Church of England, so the Establishment Clause uh, eliminates that. Uh, he has the power to create uh, nobility. He can make a new earl of whatever, right? But we have a, an express prohibition on titles of nobility to make sure that that doesn't happen. So some of the pow- prerogative powers of the king are simply eliminated, uh, but the rest are divided up between Congress and the president. But I think this is really interesting. Though even the prerogative powers are uh, reduced in scope relative to the king in, in really interesting ways. But you have to, you have to really pay attention to the details. Uh, so the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. So was the king. Uh, Blackstone calls him the generalissimo. And, and, but then, and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. Now, we don't think in terms of militias. Our present-day National Guard, 
which was created just after World War II, has some similarities to a militia, but the militia was really important back then. The difference between militia and army are the army were full time, usually lifetime. They their career they were career army guys, and militia were part time soldiers. So that you'd be on your farm, you would go like one month, one day a month to train, and then uh, if there was a war or or some need for a militia, uh, you would come out and serve, and then you'd go back to your farm. And the the framing generation regarded this as much safer. They were scared to death of what they called a standing army. We have a standing army of over 3 million people now, and we've kind of gotten used to it, and for we, it would be a subject of a lecture in and of itself to say, how did, we, how did we come to a place where we can have an army of over 3 million people and not be scared? Uh, because at this time, they were scared because the army was used by the king to put down you know, popular protests and so forth, and... They were housed in people's homes. That's what our Third Amendment prohibits, right? And what did they do when they were there? I mean, let's, let's just say wives and daughters were not necessarily safe. And there's insult. There were just a standing army was a source of enormous abuse, right? So we actually, our framers wanted not to have one. We wanted to rely on militias, which were safe, um, not quite as good at fighting, right, because they're amateurs, but still safe. And uh, so, but the president, they didn't want the president to control the militias, except when they're called into actual service. And elsewhere in the Constitution, Congress has the power to call them into actual service, and even then only for three purposes, right? To suppress, uh, respond to an invasion, suppress uh, uh, insurrections, and uh, I forget what the third one is, but in any event, uh, uh, only in certain fixed uh, circumstances by will of Congress. Note then that there are, and the militia is vastly larger than the standing army. Under Washington, the standing army at the first few years of the administration, it got a little bit larger later, but uh, there were less than a thousand members uh, of the army, most of them posted on the frontier. Uh, we were blessed, of course, by not having any dangerous close neighbors. Uh, at the same time, there were uh, uh, half, there were, uh, uh, I think it was five, I think Madison estimates something like 500,000 militia members. That may be high. I may have that number wrong. Uh, but it's a very high number. And in one of the Federalist Papers, the scariest of all the Federalist Papers, Madison actually calculates, what, what would happen? Who's stronger, federal government or the states? Is, are we, sh- are we, should we really be fearful that the federal government will, will like take over everything? No, Madison says, because the states are, have much more military power. Um, Madison calculates that the largest number that could feasibly be in a standing army at the federal level was 25,000, 
versus you know half a million men under arms defending their own states. Right, he says it's no contest. By the way, this is what the Second Amendment is really about, where it says uh, the, uh, the, uh, militia, the militia being important to the survival of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's to make sure that the federal government can't disarm the militias because the militias are a check against a, 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 a potential a military dictator in the, in the person of the president. That's really what the Second Amendment was about. Um, then, so the king controlled the militia too, not here. And so the largest number of fighting people in the whole country, the largest number are not under the president's command, and except when they're in actual, actual service. Their officers are named by the state governments not by the president. They're going to follow their own officers. It's just a, it's an ingenious solution to the double problem of needing to be able to respond to military emergencies with large numbers of, of uh, personnel, but being scared of the Julius Caesar phenomenon where the army is loyal to its commander and cross the Rubicon and put an end to the, uh, to the Republic. Ingenious. It would have worked even better if the militias weren't so bad at fighting, but uh, that's a a subject for another day. He has the power to grant reprieves and pardons, as did the king, but only for offenses against the United States. In Britain, they don't have federalism, so every offense, every criminal offense is an offense against the king, so he could pardon everything. Roughly, the numbers today, I don't know what the numbers would have been. They would have been even more extreme. But even today, about 95% of of criminal prosecutions are at the state level, not the federal level. And think of how important this is. Think about our our, uh, recently departed uh, former President Trump uh, and the fact that he is being prosecuted or might be being prosecuted, who knows, by by the Attorney General of New York and by the DA in Atlanta, he can't be pardoned for those prosecutions. It's only offenses against the United States. He could, even assuming the president can pardon himself, which I think maybe he can, he could not have protected himself against his legal danger coming from the states. Note also, except in cases of impeachment, so the president can never protect, you know, the impeachment is the, is the uh, stands out there as a potential sanction, um, you know, no matter what. The power of pardon doesn't do anything about that. Uh, appointments and treaties are made subject to advice and consent of the Senate. That's an important check. Vetoes are subject to congressional override. All of these were royal powers that were unlimited. Uh, and then... Um, uh, having pro- convening and proroguing uh, Congress, this is a huge power of the king. He could send Parliament home so he doesn't have to deal with the pesky legislature, and then he could summon, he could summon the Parliament like, so at, at his will. Uh, enormously important power. Well, the president, you have to have somebody summoning, right? So 
but only on extraordinary occasions, it says. Uh, and then he can uh, adjourn them only in case of disagreement between the two houses over when to adjourn. So uh, what, what was a very potent prerogative power of the president is like a tiny, has shrunk to a, a tiny and mostly harmless uh, thing for the president. And so uh, they, and so, so a number of powers are given to Congress altogether or taken out of the national scope altogether. <coughs> the prerogative powers given to the president are mostly trimmed rather dramatically. And then the last thing that they do uh, is that they provide that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Now, I'm going to give you my reading of this. But you should know uh, this is probably the most controversial among us sort of uh, separation of powers con law types. So I'm going to give you my view, but uh, uh, don't assume that uh, you know that there's no no other side to this. Uh, so what does that mean? There are two po- basic possibilities. One is that it best certain unallocated powers of an executive nature in the president. Uh, that's the substance, I call that the substantive interpretation. But maybe that isn't what it means. Look at the words themselves. Uh, it might just mean that we're going to have one president and his title is president, but his powers aren't, that this doesn't actually allocate any powers in and of itself. The powers are the ones that are set forth in in, uh, sections two and three. Linguistically, that is perfectly plausible. So either of these interpretations works just as a matter of of what the words themselves say. Um, But if it were true that president's only powers were the ones that are listed in sections two and three, we have, there are all these gaps. It's like uh, many things that you would expect an executive to be able to do aren't mentioned. I mean, you know, who sets foreign policy? There isn't a thing. Receiving, sending and receiving ambassadors is, is all there is. But much of foreign policy is set in, in, through means other than just sending and receiving ambassadors. Who supervises the bureaucracy? Who controls immigration and foreign travel? That there's a naturalization clause, but there's no immigration clause. There's no clause having to do with uh, with controlling the borders and who can go uh, here or there. There are huge law interpretation functions in the executive branch, not mentioned. Uh, you know, who can fire? Who gets to remove officers like the director of the FBI? Uh, uh, the uh, the the. The king had an explicit power discussed in Blackstone to remove officers. There's no explicit discussion of removal. I said that there was one for, out of 42, 41 of them were explicit. Power of removal was the one that was not explicit. And lo and behold, it is the first, the very first constitutional controversy in the Congress is a debate over who has the power of removal. So uh, it was probably just a mistake. Then, uh, so why else do I think that the, the substantive interpretation is right? Well, 
Madison seemed to think so. That counts for something. You know, he's he in the in his capacity as a member of the House of Representatives. They're debating uh, whether the president can fire the Secretary of State without uh, going to Congress for permission or without Congress having an override, like an advice and consent. Uh, and Washington, Madison says. The Constitution affirms that the executive power shall be vested in the president. So he's quoting the vesting clause. The question now resolves itself into this. Is the power of displacing an executive power? So clearly Madison thinks there are that this, this clause invests power. It doesn't tell us what they are. But we know that Madison subscribes to the substantive theory and not to just the nominal uh, theory. Well, so does Thomas Jefferson. I, I, did I promise I would mention him in the Jefferson lecture? Uh, he says, uh, and this is a written opinion in his capacity as Secretary of State, uh, he, uh, he says, the transaction of business with foreign nations is executive altogether. It belongs then to the head of that department, except as to such portions of it as are specially submitted to the Senate, as in advice and consent for ambassadors, advice and consent for treaties. The rest of it is executive. Where does that come from? It's not in in sections two and three. It's in the vesting clause, the very first sentence of of article two. And then we have our friend Alexander Hamilton. Even before the musical, he says, uh, the general doctrine then of our Constitution is that the executive power of the nation is vested in the president subject only to the exceptions and qualifications which are expressed in the instrument. That means except for the things given to Congress, except for the various ways in which the powers were whittled down, right? uh, except for that, the residue is in uh, the president. Now, as you probably remember from you know, fifth grade U.S. history, Jefferson and Hamilton were the heads of the two parties. They're at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. Madison is a close ally of Jefferson, but had been very close to Hamilton. If, if there's a proposition on which Madison, Hamilton, and Jefferson all agree, that's a pretty likely to be to, to show widespread agreement on uh, that uh, point. So uh, the hypothesis here is that all powers of an executive nature, meaning those that aren't either legislative or judicial, that were not already allocated to the Congress or the president, are included. Uh, and this, the implication of this is that if Congress has an enumerated power and passes a law, that this necessarily supersedes the president's residual executive power. Uh, that may seem a little complicated, but basically the idea here is Congress's powers are all listed. If they are acting within the, con- the, con- with the, within the scope of one of those, and, it's, and on the other side is one of these non-prerogative presidential powers, Congress wins in, in the case of, uh, of conflict. Let me just give you a couple of examples from recent history. Uh, uh, President Obama... Uh, tried to transfer the detainees from Guantanamo to the continental United States. Uh, that's a, certainly an executive power. 
It has to do with control over military detainees. Um, and Congress passed a law saying, no, you can't do that. Obama considered not, we know there was an internal debate saying, maybe I really do have the power. And he concluded, nope, it was, uh, I have to do what Congress did. So he complied with Congress, even though he disagreed with them. Uh, Remember the so-called torture memo? What this is all about was the president in his capacity as commander in chief gets to decide how to treat uh, military uh, uh, detainees, but Congress passed uh, two statutes that regulated what could be done. Remember Congress's power to pass rules for the conduct of the armed forces? Well, they pass those, one of them sponsored by Senator McCain, I'm guessing you all kind of remember this. This is like the biggest, most controversial thing, what, 10 years ago. But And uh, uh, the Bush people decided that they, um, that that the president's authority trumped the uh, Congress's authority. And that, you know, almost, it didn't bring him down, but it was like the biggest disaster, legal disaster. Uh, and the uh, president was really forced into bringing in a new uh, head of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, who withdrew the memos, which took that position. Uh, and I think m- most people, not everybody, but most people uh, think that uh, Bush was wrong and Congress had the power. And where does that come from? Well, it's because uh, the power of the president was superseded when Congress passed a law within one of its enumerated powers. Uh, I mean, there are moral things one can say about torture, too. I don't want to just... But legally, what matters is who has the power to decide these things, not what we think of them. And then um, uh, you remember Trump's uh, policy about uh, processing alien claims outside the ports of entry. His theory was uh, turn them away before... Uh, they get here, and uh, that was overturned because Congress had, pa- had passed a law saying otherwise. Interestingly, there was then the COVID, this Title 42 of the, of, of the act, which, had to, which established the COVID emergencies, was then interpreted as new, new authorization to do the same thing. And Biden, the Biden administration has been back and forth on this. So uh, that issue is not uh, is 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 still with us, but pursuant to the COVID emergency rules rather than the basic uh, law. So so these are all examples of where president's authority is exercising power that he has, unless Congress steps in and and regulates it, which they did. So I'm going to uh, call that a day. But just to say that you know so. On the third day of debate, just to bring it back to Charles Pinckney, third day of debate, uh, Pinckney says, oh, no, if we do that, we're going to have a monarch, something that's effectively a monarchy, and and that's what we don't want. And so then the Committee of Detail has these three devices in which they create quite a powerful executive, but considerably short of being a monarchy. And what I think is so, the the thing that makes me animated about this is that we're facing the same questions for ourselves. 
right? But not looking forward to the future, but rather the actual experience of, of politics uh, over the last several decades, because there has been a tendency of presidents of both parties to assert more power than people like me think that they actually have. And I want to stress both parties. And uh, even now, even right now in the Supreme Court, we have some cases in which President Biden has done some things like, dare I, I hope there are no students here with outstanding loans because they may beat me up. But one question, can the president actually cancel student loans when Congress has not author appropriated the money to do that? I'm saying the answer to that is no. I think that's the same uh, kind of principles here because uh, the, there are lots of ways you can think about questions of separation of powers. What I have done is to present a, a, a theory based upon the text and history of the Constitution. There's political science. There's all kinds of other ways one might do it. But there is one way that I think is not proper, and that's in a partisan way. That is, so many people think if it's a president I voted for and whom I like, he can do whatever he wants. And if it's the other guy, the other party, well, you know, they, that, then we're going to be very careful about constitutional limits. I submit to you that uh, it, what's the, one of the most fundamental principles of constitutional law is what sauce for goo the goose is sauce for the gander. And we really need to think, when it's a president of our own choosing, our own party, that's the time to be especially vigilant because the precedents are going to be set. And you can be darn sure that the other party is going to use those powers that your president is using for good things. They're going to use for things that you don't think are so good. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. And we have uh, time for some questions. Uh, let me thank you for an extraordinarily rich and powerful talk, which uh, presented, I thought, a, a very, very strong critique of uh, uh, unitary executive theory. I thought it really did a terrific job in undermining that. Uh, the basic um, center of gravity of the talk was the uh, the division of powers, separation of powers between the Congress and the president. The unitary executive theory also, as I understand it, deals with the issue of bundling or unbundling powers within the executive. That is to say, the idea of a single executive who has the capacity to appoint uh, is, uh, some people will argue, uh, the source of a power that is far greater than, for example, the power of a governor in a state where the attorney general is elected, other officials are elected. So the question seems to me, uh, how does the Congress, uh, how, how does the, uh, well, the Constitution really, uh, resolve this issue? Uh, in particular, the issue of other institutions within the executive, uh, which uh, were to a certain extent capable of creating a kind of relative autonomy, the type of thing that the Brown Law Committee, for example, during FDR, called a fourth branch of government. Uh, the type of thing that, in a way, uh, became important during uh, the uh, Saturday Night Massacre in the Nixon administration or the attempt uh, of Trump uh, to 
put Jeffrey Clark in as the attorney general. It seems to me that's, in a way, a crucial issue. The relative autonomy of the Department of Justice, the attorney general, as opposed to the president. And my question really is, what guidance does the Constitution give us to adjudicate uh, that version of the uh, argument? Well, you may not like my answer to this, <laughs> uh, I'm guessing. Uh, so there are three uh, levers of power that the president has with respect to his own, to the executive branch, res with respect to, say, cabinet departments or executive uh, administrative agencies or the like. Uh, one is the power of appointment. So he gets to choose uh, the people who are going to be in office. I don't think anyone doubts that the president has that with respect to all officers of the United States. So that includes so-called the, the, the fourth independent fourth branch, if you believe in it, I'm going to call those independent agencies. Uh, they are also appointed. The heads of those are also appointed by the president. I don't, and I think that's not controversial. So the second thing uh, that the president has the power to do is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, which I think means that whoever is executing law is answerable to the president and the president will decide whether that they are doing it the way he wants. And I don't think that that, now maybe this is controversial, but I don't think that that just means are they not violating the law. I think it means are they administering in the way that it ought to be, and that's going to be a policy fraught uh, determination. You know, Joe Biden is going to look at it in one way. Donald Trump would have looked at it in another. Any president is going to look at it in a slightly different way. And then the third thing, the third lever of power is removal. And this was the power, the power of the king that was left not addressed uh, in the Constitution. Um, I believe that the president does have the power of removal and that there are no independent fourth branches of government. I think he can fire them all. And I think we should be glad about that because I don't think that we should have bureaucracies with large scale, you know, large scale discretionary policymaking powers that aren't answerable to somebody who is answerable uh, to the people. Now, that's a political science sort of judgment on my part. Some people really believe in independent agencies. They think maybe they have expertise or something. You know, I, I spent a number of years in the bowels of the bureaucracy and expertise. I don't know. Uh, uh, pardon a little skepticism when they make decisions. I think it's a lot more politics than it is uh, expertise most of the time. But I do not think that this means we have a unitary executive in the way people use that term meaning. But what they mean is they look at that first sentence of Article 2, the executive power is vested in the president. And I think, and what they say is everything that goes on in the executive is directly controllable by the president. I think our framers were more subtle than that. And the most important way that you can see that is um, that the president appoints, but only with the advice and consent of the Senate, right? So he can't just put into office 
you know, pe- people who will just do. The Senate cares both about policy, but at least when they're doing their jobs the way I wish they would be doing their job. They also should be looking at issues of, of character uh, and experience and so forth. And, they, and many, if you look at maybe not recent history, but our lifetime history, you know, many times the Senate has dinged nominees for reasons that you just, they're just not trustworthy uh, people, and, and that's important. And since officers of the United States, I think, don't, don't take this to the bank, but I believe on average they serve just a little bit over two-year terms. That they, you know, there's a lot of churn and that means the president is going to be going back to the Senate. And although the Senate often confirms the first raft of people, while everybody, while well, the president has a honeymoon, or give him his, give him his, uh, uh, give him his head at the beginning. None of our recent presidents have uh, continued to have a honeymoon for more than a, a few years after. If, they, if he has to go back every two years, that's going to be a, a very substantial check. And there is also a check from uh, the courts because the, um, because the uh, agents, although you can't really sue the president, you can sue uh, the secretary of treasury or you know, all, all the various officers of government uh, when they are violating your rights. And that's a very substantial check as well. Maybe even more so. This is a little off topic, but since the this started really at the end, the last couple of years of the Obama administration, it became very common for state attorneys general of, in that case, red states, to sue uh, using their taxpayer dollars, but really on and sue on things that was none of their business, but where they to challenge executive uh, action, they would then have a friendly judge, often the, for when it's the red state suing, it's often the Northern District of Texas. Uh, when it's the blues, they have the, the Democrats have a few, have more choices of, uh, you know, of reliable district judges. You go to your reliable district judge, you get a nationwide injunction against the president's action, and it takes what? Two years, three years, four years, at least two or three years, usually, um, to get up through the court system. Not infrequently, the Supreme Court says, no, the president had a right to do that. All right. But it's too late. Most of his presidency is over, and there's been an injunction against the thing he's doing. Uh, so to my mind, in, in, in that sense, we have maybe two, we have overdone it. And there are currently three cases in the Supreme Court uh, in which the authority of state attorneys general to bring this kind of action and get that kind of order uh, is up. I don't, I really do not know what the Supreme Court is going to do about those. Uh, but uh, I do think it's a real problem. And, and again, a bipartisan problem. Biden is having the problem right now. Trump had the problem. Obama had the problem. It is a recent phenomenon, though. Historian Gordon Wood, citing the founder of American Studies, has suggested that the founders 
were looking at tyranny anticipated and that they misunderstood the glorious revolution and the actual powers that King George III had and exercised, which are demonstrated in the language which they used in the Declaration of Independence. Now, notwithstanding that it somehow has worked out, after George Washington, presidents became partisan. And while the English monarch is a sovereign that represents the nation, oftentimes the American president is viewed as not only partisan, but also the leader of the nation. And those two seem to be in conflict with each other. All I can say, I, I, I think that's m almost entirely true. Uh, I, I would might maybe add just a little bit to it. It is certainly true that you can that the many of the framers did not understand the developments that had happened in Britain between the Glorious Revolution and 1787. You can some of them some of them were much more au courant than others. Just a, a quick example of that is uh, the veto that. On paper, George III still could veto any act of parliament, and he could not be overridden. The last time anyone had done that was Queen Anne, and I believe it was 1708. Okay, so, uh, and, and most, I think most historians, including Gordon Wood, think that if the king had vetoed anything, it would have been like a constitutional you know, crisis, and he might very well have been, been kicked out. Although there's another view, probably true at the same time, even though it's the opposite. This is David Hume's view, is that this was just, the lack of vetoes was just a sign that the king had taken over. He was using, basically, uh, the gift of offices and lucrative things. He had all these, this corruption was the word they used for it that he was able to use these subtle things to buy off parliaments so effectively that he didn't need to veto anything because nothing was ever passed that he didn't want to begin with. Who knows, maybe both of those things are true. And, and the other thing you said, which is so true and so important, our framers did not anticipate party politics in our in our way. And there are all kinds of things about our constitutional system that work in a different way than they expected. Uh, I love one of your, I think you said lucked into, or you said something about how we, we, we stumbled into. A lot of the things we stumbled into, though, actually work surprisingly well, even though they weren't what the people were expecting. Professor, you, you showed us all the hard work that the Committee of Detail in the Congress did in dividing up the executive power and, and regulating the executive power. And you also showed us that some of the founders, uh, when questions came about the scope of what was allocated, were, were uh, uh, very ready and willing to weigh in with uh, their views and opinions on that. You, you noted you, you didn't say anything about Hamilton or Madison saying, well, let's go ask the Supreme Court. <laughs> So what did they think? Who, how did they think when there was, when, when, the, when the executive power isn't vested in a single king and it's divided up and regulated and chopped up, who did the founders think would resolve these questions about the scope and who has which? 
so the, the Supreme Court, the courts had nothing. They were not engaged in this for the first decade and a half. Uh, and uh, it, it was, these were, they were debates in Congress, Madison made, and, and debating the bank, uh, constitutionality of the Bank of the United States says something like, uh, you know, we are, we are the body that decides these things and, uh, and are, we'll be setting precedents that will, you know, last uh, the whole time. Uh, I, I'm afraid I'm about to nerd out. Is that okay? Would you, uh, so this will take me two minutes to do the, do the full nerd. Uh, but you're probably all familiar with Marbury versus Madison. Everybody knows it as the first Supreme Court case that established that the, that the Supreme Court or the courts have power to independently judge whether or not acts of Congress are constitutional or not. That is not true. Uh, plainly not true, even though it's taught in almost every law school in America. Uh, the Supreme Court already did that. It was not established. It's not that they didn't have the power. It's that no, everybody knew they had the power. There was a case called United States versus Hilton about eight years before Marbury, which was a straightforward constitutional challenge to a statute passed by Congress. By the way, it was a tax on carriages, uh, if you're interested. Um, and the uh, a prominent framer named Luther Martin represented the plaintiffs. Alexander Hamilton represented uh, the Department of Treasury. Uh, uh, the, the justices of the Supreme Court had been right there at the Constitutional Convention, and the, the court upheld the statute. And so we say, well, but that's the, but nobody doubted the only issue was the constitutionality. So, but what's really important, there was something important about and new and controversial about Marbury versus Madison, but it wasn't judicial review of acts of Congress. It was judicial review of acts of the president because it was a challenge to the Secretary of State's failure to do something. And Thomas Jefferson was president, and he took the view. He looks at the clause that says, the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And he says, that means the president is the one who decides whether the law is being faithfully executed or not. So if anybody has a problem with what the Secretary of State is doing or not doing, come to me, send me a petition. And the court uh, says, no, we have the power to issue a writ of mandamus. And mandamus is a, is a prerogative writ that tells the officer to the person to whom it is directed, to do something as opposed to telling them not to do something. So it's, a, it's a mandate as opposed to a prohibition. And that was what was at issue. That's what Jefferson, threw, he was like through a tantrum about this in Marbury versus Madison. And guess what happened? His attorney general named Caesar Rodney issued an order to all the U.S. attorneys around the country saying, do not obey any uh, writs of mandamus against the executive branch because they're unconstitutional. And there were, the Supreme Court does not issue another writ of mandamus until the 1840s. So uh, you ask, why isn't the Supreme Court involved? Uh, part reason that they aren't involved in the separation of powers things 
is that there were at least the Jeffersonian side of the spectrum thought that they had no business being involved. Please, would you join me in thanking uh, Michael McConnell for his work? been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.